Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Reflecting on this, I decided to follow her advice, and I noticed profound changes in my own dogs. Enhanced energy, healthier skin, and an overall younger demeanor. It's truly heartwarming to see them so vibrant and full of life. Go to badlandsfood.com hometown and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash hometown. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Off in the background of every National Park success story is another story of catastrophic failure. One giant, towering, cascading, cautionary tale. Our government was so willing to protect areas like Death Valley because we had already blown our one chance to protect the first great natural attraction America ever had, Niagara Falls. In fact, the failure to protect Niagara from exploitation was so fundamental to the growth of the national park system that its unofficial motto might be something like, Niagara, never again. You might be wondering, so what happened at Niagara that was so bad? The answer is, much of what you see today. This beautiful, singular, natural marvel is basically one giant gift shop slash tourist trap surrounded by the remains of old mills and power plants. I asked Jim Pattis, at more than just parks, to say a word about the exploitation of Niagara. So obviously we expanded westward and early on, really the exploitation was going on in the eastern United States. And so when we come up on Niagara Falls, obviously it's this incredibly scenic, gorgeous waterfall. But 
we didn't have a lot of systems in place at that time to, frankly, any to protect a place as grand as that. And so what you ended up happening was you actually had power companies came in. They wanted to harness Niagara Falls for hydroelectric power. And then, of course, you just had it absolutely overrun with tourist type shops and hotels and stores and everything. And so it got to the point where you go and visit and it's been completely spoiled. And I think that stood out to Americans. And then we were very fortunate that we had some really great leaders who came up like Theodore Roosevelt, who would rant and rave about the fact that he would drive out into the country or, or ride out into the country and he'd see billboards on, on trees and all this stuff. And he would say, we were defacing this beautiful land we have. When he says, leave it as it is. The ages have been at work on it and man can only mar it. And that's, I think that's the national parks in essence right there. And that's kind of the, the turning point in the way we think about our beautiful landscapes in this country. Niagara was America's first international attraction. The one exception to the European sneer that there was nothing to see here. But in the early 1800s, the land around the falls was auctioned off by the state of New York on the American side and leased to private owners on the Canadian side. Hotels and milling operations soon crowded the site. In 1833, one visitor noted, The forest has everywhere yielded to the axe. Museums, mills, staircases, tools, and grog shops, all the petty trickery of English resorts, greet the eye of the traveler. A few years later, in 1847, another complained. Now the neighborhood of the Great Wanderer is overrun. With every species of abominable fungus, the growth of rank bad taste, Chinese pagoda, menagerie, camera obscura, museum, watchtower, wooden monument, tea gardens, and old curiosity shops. The biggest threat, however, was industrial, prompting the environmentalist J. Horace McFarland to write an article called Shall We Make a Coal Pile of Niagara? McFarland lamented, the engineers calmly agree that Niagara Falls will, in a few years, be but a memory. A memory of what? A grandeur, beauty and natural majesty, unexcelled anywhere on earth, sacrificed unnecessarily for the gain of a few. The words might be well emblazoned in the letters of fire across the shamelessly uncovered bluff of the American Fall, the monument of America's shame and greed. In his own words, if nothing was done soon to protect this natural wonder, all that would be left would be a bare cliff and a mass of factories, a maze of wires and tunnels and wheels and generators. To date, at least 11 power plants have set up at Niagara over the years. Some are still operative, and the remains of others are still visible at the falls. I take the time to say all of this because it's impossible to tell the story of the national park system without telling the story of this first national park that never was. To truly appreciate everything that went right with the national park system, it helps to remember just how easily it could have gone wrong. Fear of a similar disaster has fueled the American conservation movement from its origin through the present day. I bring up Niagara in this episode specifically because it was centered on the exploitation of water power and the defacing of a natural landmark. In 1930, when our government created the Hoover Dam, 
an exponentially more ambitious attempt to exploit water power, the result was the destruction of some natural landscapes, but the creation of a new one, which was designated as a natural recreation area, straddling the border of Nevada and Arizona. Standing on top of the Hoover Dam and looking down its long scope is a dizzying, almost panic-inducing experience. My first thought was that it was like a Niagara Falls of concrete, though it is, in fact, more than twice as tall. With a height of 60 stories and a base more than 60 yards thick, it's the most amazing man-made thing I've ever seen. The result of this dam was a new, massive 112-mile-long body of water and the largest reservoir in the United States, Lake Mead. In 1936, the lake and the surrounding shoreline were placed under the management of the National Park Service, and the resulting public land was called Boulder Dam National Recreation Area. It was renamed Lake Mead National Recreation Area in 1947. So, while at Niagara Falls, we lost a potentially sprawling national park, at the Hoover Dam, we gained a beautiful national recreation area. Incidentally, Each spillway in the Hoover Dam is capable of handling the full volume of water that passes over Niagara. While the Hoover Dam gets most of the attention, Lake Mead is one of the many hidden gems of the National Park Service, or at least, so I thought. Because the Lake Mead Recreation Area lives in the shadow of the Hoover Dam, I had always assumed it was a lesser-known, lesser-appreciated destination. Our friend Jim Burnett was quick to correct me. You make an interesting point about that, although it's interesting that if you look at the number of visits to units in the national park system, typically Lake Mead is in the top 10, certainly in the top 20, way ahead of a lot of better known parks. But that's primarily because uh, it's a big body water in the middle of a huge desert. And so it's just a big magnet for people who want a place to go and have things to do on the water. So that's one reason that it's, it's called a national recreation area instead of a national park. And there is some latitude to do a few more things there that perhaps wouldn't be considered quite as, as appropriate for a national park service area. And so that's a good point. And that's why people go there. They want to go to a boat and fish and swim and water ski and camp and that kind of thing. And first timers may be surprised at a couple of things. There's a big recreation area and its name is Lake Mead National Recreation Area and it includes Lake Mead but it also has a second lake which is Lake Mojave which is downstream from Hoover Dam in Pounds Lake Mead and then the what used to be the Colorado River would flow through Hoover Dam and continue on downstream now they've built a second dam 67 miles downstream from Hoover Dam that impounds Lake Mojave and so that's one and people if they aren't familiar with the area, might not know about that fact. Though the appeal of Lake Mead was immediately obvious when we visited, I would never have guessed it was as popular as it is. The second big surprise, and this has been on the news so much, maybe it's not a big surprise, but Lake Mead is falling on hard times because of the serious drought that's been going on really for 20 years in that part of the country. And the lake has really dropped dramatically. In fact, it is it's at its lowest point since the lake was first filled back in the late 1930s, early 1940s. And so that that means if you're planning a trip there and your purpose of going is to get on the water and go boating, water skiing, that kind of thing, my typical first tip for anybody planning a visit to any National Park Service area is to be sure you get good information. And the 
official park website is a good place to do that. If you just Google Lake Mead National Recreation Area and look for the site that includes nps.gov for National Park Service Government, you're on the official site. And the homepage of that site will have a link, something called alerts. And the alerts are just what they say, maybe things are really urgent, important for you to know. And if you're going to Lake Mead for the purpose of boating, those alerts are important. They'll give you information about the current lake level and information about places that you can no longer use. People who have visited Lake Mead in the past, there used to be a number of big resort areas with marinas and boat ramps and lodges, and those are closed because there's no longer any water there. It's really pretty dramatic. And so that's why it's important if you're going to Lake Mead to check and be sure what you're getting into. If you went to Echo Bay 10 years ago for a great vacation, Echo Bay is all boarded up right now, no water there. And I don't want, I want to be fair to the folks at Mead. There still is a nice marina and resort and facilities down at the lower end of the lake down close to to Hoover Dam. And you can certainly still go and do those kind of things. But the number of places where you can do that around Lake Mead itself are much smaller than they are. And there are interesting things to do there. People like to go and take the tour through Hoover Dam and see the power plant. There's some nice hikes to do there during the cooler time of the year. Summertime is not the time to go hiking at Lake Mead. It's it's hot there. Not quite as hot as Death Valley, but still unpleasantly warm. So warm that, in fact, the park closes some of the trails there during the summertime because they just got where they were overwhelmed with the number of rescues that were taking place by people who got into trouble there. So if you want to hike in Lake Mead, go do that during the fall, winter, spring, not during the summertime. Another point to keep in mind, if you're going to boat at Lake Mead, I just saw a YouTube video today where the water areas continue to drop steadily and there are rocks and reefs and hazards under the water that are no longer very far under the water. Places that you could just zoom through in your boat a month ago, if you zoom through there now, you're likely to hit something. So you just have to be a lot more cautious if you're boating there right now. Now, the good news is if you still want to go and do all those water-related things at Lake Mead National Recreation Area, your solution is to go to their second lake, go to Lake Mojave, that's downstream from Hoover Dam. And interesting enough, even though Lake Mead is way below a third full, Lake Mojave is 95% full as of today. And that number has been fairly consistent for the last 10 years. It varies a little, but not very much. The reason is that Lake Mojave is a lot smaller. It's a lot shallower, a lot smaller lake, so it doesn't take as much water to fill it up. But second, they're still generating electricity and still releasing water through Hoover Dam for uses downstream, and that water all flows into Lake Mojave. So that keeps Lake Mojave in good shape. So if you want to go do all those water-related things, plenty of ample opportunities to do that at Lake Mead National Recreation Area. Just go to the second lake, one that's not quite as well known. One other, well, one, one point about Lake Mojave, there are three nice developed areas there. They have paved road and paved boat ramp and a marina and a resort and restaurants and all those kind of things. One called Willow Beach is about 12 miles downstream from Hoover Dam. You get to it from the Arizona side off US 93. Cottonwood Cove is about an hour's drive south of Las Vegas on the Nevada side. And then about a two-hour drive from the center of Las Vegas is Catherine Landing, which is the far south end of Lake Mojave near the town of Bullhead City in Laughlin, Nevada. It's just about on the state line down there. So if you're looking 
for a chance to go and have fun on the water, all three of those places are a good spot to go. So there's a tip, get good information. Uh, if you can go to late meet and still have a good time, but if you're looking for maybe a little less restricted opportunity for where you can boat and not worry so much about having to keep an eye on the water levels, then Lake Mojave is a good opportunity. Now, I do have another tip from my ranger experience for anybody that's thinking about going boating. If you're either new to boating or if you just haven't had your boat out for quite a while, and in order to get to the river or the lake, you're going to have to haul your boat on a trailer down to the lake or the river. Probably the most important tip I can give you for your boating life is if you are not experienced in backing up a trailer, don't have your first experience with that on a busy Saturday morning on the boat ramp when other folks are trying to do the same thing. Hook up your your boat on the trailer and find an empty parking lot to go to the school parking lot during the summer or shopping center when they're closed or whatever and practice driving that rascal around and backing it up so you can back it up in a straight line and not jackknife it all over the parking lot. And you'll have a lot happier trip to the water if you'll do that. You'll avoid a lot of uncomplimentary stares from the other guys that you got backed up on the ramp because you've got it tied up and you'll avoid defining yourself as the star character in somebody's entry in America's Funnest Home videos. Uh, after years of being a ranger, I've seen literally thousands of people trying to launch boats on boat ramps, and most of them are successful. And the ones that aren't are sometimes really epic failures. So there's my tip. Practice that, that maneuvering that boat trader before you ever make it out to the lake. For what it's worth, I've tried to back up boat trailers just a few times, and it's way harder than it looks. For me, at least, Everything seems to have the opposite effect and turn the opposite direction than you think it will. And the more I tried to correct it, the worse it got. I mentioned this to Jim, and it was good to hear I wasn't alone in my incompetence. You're exactly right. It is counterintuitive. And interestingly enough, all traders are not equal. A short trader, for me, was always harder to back up than a longer one. It just tended to jackknife faster. So, yeah, practice makes perfect anything, including the boat on a trailer, that's for sure. And the same thing applies if you got a if you're towing up a camper or an RV or whatever else. Same comment applies there. I asked Jim what other advice he might have for enjoying the water at the recreation area with as little drama as possible. Yeah. Talked a little bit about some spots to go there at on Lake Mojave. And I'd be remiss if I didn't tell people that I mentioned the Willow Beach and Cottonwood Cove and Catherine Landing. All three have all those facilities, marinas and campgrounds and boat ramps. But Willow Beach is really a, a totally different kind of experience. And depending upon what people want, that might be good and it might not be what they're looking for. Willow Beach is just 12 miles down the Colorado River below Hoover Dam. And it's in the bottom of a, a really pretty impressive canyon. Some places over a thousand feet deep called Black Canyon. And that comes from mainly the predominant color of the rock there. And it still has a lot of the same look and feel as the Colorado River did before all these dams were built. And that's true, the water level fluctuates. If they're releasing a lot of water through Hoover Dam, the level's going to be up. And if, they're, if they've shut the turbines down, the water levels are going to drop. It can fluctuate by several feet just in a matter of a few hours there. So technically, it's at the upper end of Lake Mojave, but it really has a lot of the feel, really, of the old Colorado River. And that's kind of an appeal to some people. 
but that also creates some other factors to be aware of because it's really a narrow winding canyon. There are some rules in effect there that between Willow Beach going back upstream toward the dam, you're not allowed to take a houseboat. You can't water ski. You can't wakeboard. Those kind of things require you to go fast. And the reason is you got these narrow winding canyons and all at once you zoom around a tight turn and here's a guy going full board toward a water skier. It would not end well for anybody. So if you want to water ski and take your houseboat, you can go downstream from Willow Beach, but no, don't go upstream before the dam with that. Flip side of that is that area is a great place if you want to canoe or kayak. If you've done canoe or kayak, you get out on water on a wide open lake, especially if you get in the wind, that just does not make for a fun trip. But you get in those in that narrow canyon, it's a it's really a good place for canoeing and kayaking. Now the wind can still blow, and if you're paddling against the wind, even in the canyon, it's not necessarily fun. But that's become a real appealing place for people who want to go and have a, a quieter experience. In fact, the park has now created what's called the Black Canyon National Water Trail. It starts at Hoover Dam, follows Black Canyon for about 20 miles downstream past Willow Beach a little further away. And on Sundays and Mondays, year-round, from Willow Beach upstream to the dam, there's no boats, no power boats are allowed at all, strictly for hand-powered craft. So you've got it all yourself if you want a canoe or a kayak, and it makes it for a really nice experience. And there are some other regulations that deal with some restrictions on the other days of the week with horsepower limits on boats for that part of the canyon. If you just search online for Black Canyon National Water Trail. Get all those details so you're not surprised about that. And if you want a canoe or a kayak, they rent those at the marina there at the Willow Beach Resort. And if you're a little unsure about your canoe and your kayaking skills, there are several private companies now that have permits to offer guided canoe and kayak trips and even some raft trips that put in to just downstream from Hoover Dam and take out at Willow Beach. So that's the way you can do that if you're not really confident about your skills. And they're a, they're a, a half-day trip. They're not a long, drawn-out thing. But it's a good way to have that kind of experience on the water. Now, I mentioned they're launching below Hoover Dam. You can't do that with your private boat. They limit those launches right at the foot of the dam to those private companies. And it's a security thing. They don't want just everybody in the world having access down there to the bottom of a really important infrastructure area. But that's, a, that's another neat experience. I worked there at Willow Beach and also for a while at Catherine and also up on Echo Bay years ago when that was still a going concern up at Lake Mead. In my opinion, really, this, the scenery, I think, during the Willow Beach area is it's kind of unique, but I think it's the most dramatic and maybe the most interesting in all of Lake Mead. It's kind of like Granny Canyon or the desert places. In, the, in most of the daytime, when the sun's high, it's just pretty doggone bleak looking. But in the morning, early in the morning and late in the afternoon, you get water is still and you get the sun reflected off that water and reflect on those candy. It can really be a, a very pretty place. And so I'd, I suggest that people, uh, if they're at the Lake Mead National Recreation Area, take a drive down to Willow Beach. If you just drive down there and stop and look at the canyon, look at the water and have a meal at the restaurant, and it can be a neat place to go. While the lake itself will be familiar to those who have done their fair share of boating, the setting for this lake is probably radically different than other lakes you've experienced. But there's a reason for this. Bodies of water, like Lake Mead, don't naturally occur in situations like this. I asked Jim if he might point out any specific features that might surprise the first-time visitor. 
There are, and this is definitely a surprise for people who've not been there before. You're there in the middle of the desert and summertime, it's 110, 115 degrees, and you stick your foot in the water and you yank it back out because the water temperature there year-round is in the low 50s. And I can tell you from experience, if it's 110 and you wait out there in deep, deep in 52 degree water, it's a shock to the system, which is another reason why water skiing is not allowed on that the particular part of the river. And people say, well, how can that possibly be out in the middle of the desert? And the explanation really is pretty logical. One of the big reasons they built Lake Mead was to generate electric power. And so they draw the water for those turbines from a point near the bottom of Lake Mead. And so the water is cool there year-round. It may be becoming less of a factor now as the lake is getting a lot shallower. But the water is consistently still in the low 50s there in the lower part of Lake Mead. And so when it comes through the dam and out into the river, it's shaded part of the day by the high canyon walls, and it's moving with some current. And so it takes it 15, 16, 17 miles to go that canyon before the water starts to warm up. And so that is a kind of unique experience there. And so that's why that's not a great place. If you want to swim, Willow Beach is not the place to go. But it's a unique thing, and it does create some kind of unusual situations occasionally. I've had people ask me to give talks in various kind of groups over the years, during my years as a ranger. And one of the questions that almost always comes up, people are, if you, if I made a list of the top 10 things people are worried about if they're going in the outdoors, snakes would be somewhere on that top 10. People are just really worried about having what I call a close encounter of the worst kind with the reptile. And the reality is that very rarely happens. But to try to reassure people, I say, well, I've got, I've got three basic rules about snakes. If you just follow these, you're probably going to be okay. The first is if you see a snake, just leave it alone. And if you can't follow rule number one, at least don't pick up the snake. And the third one is, just don't put your hands or your feet or any other body part in a place that you haven't already looked carefully to be sure it's not already occupied by a snake or some other life form. And if you follow all three of those, then you're probably going to be in pretty good shape anywhere you go in the outdoors in terms of snakes. But some, some people don't follow that advice. And one good example happened while I was working there at Willow Beach and interesting enough, it involved cold water and it involved rattlesnakes. And strangely enough, rattlesnakes sometimes would get into that cold water. And you might remember from that long ago high school biology class that snakes and other reptiles were cold-blooded creatures. That doesn't mean they're inherently evil. It just means that they can't regulate their body temperature the same way that mammals can. But what happens if, if a snake would get into the water, the that cold water in that area would gradually start to slow its metabolism down and pretty soon it would fall into a, just a state of suspended animation. It was basically a hibernating for all practical purposes. And so if it's in the water, pretty soon it's just floating on top of the water. And to all practical purposes, I was sometimes kidding to say, if, if snakes had feet, it looked like it was going toes up. It was just done for. And so one day these two guys were fishing. They're on the river up, not too far downstream from the dam, they spotted this snake floating on the surface of the water. And that my joke is, I say, what I'm said, hey, Jim Bob, look at that snake. That's just the fish that out of the river. It's taken home. We'll make us some belt buckles and hat bands and make us a necklace out of the vertebrae. There's people have all kinds of creative things they can do in the folk art world out of snakes. And so one of them grabbed his paddle and he reached over and 
snagged the snake and flipped it in the bottom of the boat. They went back to their purpose of being there, which was fishing. So they were just, they had the motor shut off. They were just drifting on downstream, taking it easy. What they didn't consider was that when they flipped that sleepy snake up on the bottom of that aluminum boat and laid there in the sun, it didn't take very long before a revival of sorts took place. And I don't know whether you've ever heard a rattlesnake's warning buzz. It's a pretty intimidating sound. I've heard it quite a few times. Thankfully, I've never heard it coming from the vicinity of my feet when I'm sitting in a small boat out in the middle of a river. And so how this thing played out was I was on boat patrol and a couple of visitors flagged me down. And I got the classic ingredients and they said, hey, Ranger. And I said, yeah, they flagged me down. So I came over and said, what's up? They said, well, we think there's something going on upriver that you need to go check on. I said, okay, what's that? He said, well, we found this boat drifting down the river. It had all the usual stuff, had fishing poles, tackle boxes, lunchbox, a couple of partially consumed cans of our favorite beverage were sitting there in the cup holders. There's no people on board. I said, yeah, that's a little unusual. said, but yeah, but it was occupied. There was a rattlesnake on board. And said, yeah, that might suggest there's an issue. And, the, and so the guy said, well, we thought there was a problem. So we had some buddies with us in other boats. So we sent them upstream to see if they could figure out what's going on. And we came down to find you. So I headed upriver and before long, I found this conference going on one of the sandbars, and here's these four guys standing around in a couple of boats. And so the rest of the story was that these guys were sitting in the boat. They heard the rattlesnake rattle, and they concluded pretty quickly that boat was not big enough for them, and the rattlesnake had already made it clear that he'd staked a claim to the boat. The good news out of this story was that these guys were following good advice, and they had their life jackets on. Because when they decided to do the man overboard drill, if they had jumped into that 52 degree water, it might not have been such a happy ending for them, but they were in great shape. And it was only 20 feet to the bank. So they swam over and pretty soon these other guys came along and found them. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the other group had found their boat drifting along and they had shoved it up on the sandbar and everybody was reunited. By the time I got there and they, and they told me this story, there's no sign of the rattlesnake. And their story was that the before everybody else got there and the owners showed up to reclaim the boat, the snake had just decided to bail out on his own volition. He was gone. And I followed my own rules for snakes. I saw no virtue and beat through that thick underbrush trying to see if the snake was still there or not. And so we just let the story just end right there. But my, my word to the wise out of the whole situation was, again, go back to our tips. And if you see a snake, just leave it lie. It may not be what it appears at, at first notice. So it worked out well, but the cold water certainly had a had a factor in that story. There is one other factor of that of that cold water that's that is a plus. Willow Beach for many years was renowned for a prime spot to go fishing for rainbow trout. Trout really are a cold water fish. In fact, there is a national fish hatcher there that raised trout just to release in that area for the trout fishery. And that's still a great place for fishing today. In fact, if you look in, in some of the record books, the Colorado River record for a rainbow trout caught on hook and line was 21-pound rainbow trout. It was caught there in the Willow Beach area. And a little less appealing to me, but also the Colorado River record for a carp caught by spearfishing was 32 pounds. That was at Willow Beach. And interestingly enough, the record on the river for a striped bass was also caught in the Willow Beach area, 67 pounds 
just a half inch shy of four feet. That's a big fish by any measure. Now, the kind of the asterisk for this is that for many years, they did not have stripers, striped bass there at Lake Mojave. They were either introduced there, either intentionally or accidentally, whatever, but they've really taken hold. And the stripers reproduced down in the warm water down further down the lake, but they've they can survive in cold water and they found that they really like trout for lunch. So the reason those stripers are so big is the there's an ample supply of trout upstream. So I, I'm not sure the trout fishing is quite as good as it used to be, but for all around fishing, the Willow Beach area is still excellent. And any place else for warm water, fish down further Lake Mojave is another really good place to go. Well, you can, but it's not required there. So yeah, so in fact, the it's been a while since I was there, but the resort there at Willow Beach, their gimmick used to be that if you caught up a trout and you brought it into the to the resort and it weighed at least five pounds, they would take your picture holding. A five-pound trout is a pretty impressive fish. So you're standing there, you take your photo holding your five-pound trout, and they would frame it and put it on the wall. And every square foot of empty space on the walls in that resort were papered with the photos of people with their trout. So it's still a neat spot, a good place to go. Just remember that it's a little different from the rest of the lake. Just again, it comes back to have good information. Figure out if you want to fish and like cold water, want a canoe, kayak, Willow Beach is great. If you want to water ski and other stuff, go down further down the lake. In spite of the unusually cold water and the other environmental factors that shape our experience at Lake Mead, the single most important thing you should always remember is that you are still in the middle of a giant desert. You're exactly right. And the desert is still the the overriding factor in terms of uh, a trip and your experience there. Again, sometimes compared, particularly the Willow Beach area, but anywhere in, in Lake Mojave, Lake Mead to Death Valley, it's not as hot as Death Valley, but it's still really warm. And during the, the summertime, it's just not very pleasant there. It's not a place to come tent camp. I used to joke and say we had one of the few campgrounds in the national park system. You could go to the campground in Willow Beach on the 4th of July. If you find anybody there, it'd be a miracle. So no problem finding a spot. It's a great place to go from about mid-October to mid-April. But if you've got to really enjoy hot weather, if you want to go there there during the summertime. And there is one plus, interesting enough, though, for the hot weather. Another interesting thing to see there in that area, and particularly there on Lake Mojave, are desert bighorn sheep which are really an interesting variety of wildlife. And they were, numbers were dwindling for a while. They're starting to make a comeback. Occasionally now you will even see some there along a road there in the area. They've even, uh, a couple of overpasses have been built crossing US 93 there south of Hoover Dam where they, so the sheep can get across the highway safely. But the best place to have a chance to really see some of those desert bighorns is on the river downstream about the next 10 or 15 miles from Willow Beach, still in the canyon. Every place there's a, a tributary or a side canyon that comes down into what used to be the Colorado River, now Lake Mojave, there's a nice sandbar there. And during the really hot weather, the sheep uh, have to come down more often than they would in the wintertime just to get water. And so if you're boating along there, you might be lucky and see a band of anywhere from two or three to maybe even a couple of dozen bighorn sheep. If you do, the tip is if you want, if you're just... Zoom in on by on the boat, that's fine. But if you want to see the sheep, the key is just cut your engine, just let your boat drift and just to come on slowly by and they'll probably just stay right there by the water and just ignore you. If you got a nice telephoto lens on your camera, you can get some nice shots. However, if you pull your boat up on the shore, 
then they're going to be gone. Probably they're up in the brush and back up the canyon. So you got to enjoy them from the water. Don't try to get up close and personal with them. But that's another neat thing that you can do there and then the hot weather in the summertime it makes it easier to maybe spot them because they have to come down to get water. We had hoped to see some of these bighorns and spent some time looking, but as hot as it was, it may not have been hot enough to lure them down. I asked of these unusual environmental conditions and any other interesting stories he encountered. The hot weather, again, does lend itself to a lot of other unusual situations. And it's almost kind of like places like Death Valley. Some people are really fascinated by the extremes. And the one example is a lady that came into the ranger station one day. And it was, as we always check the weather at one o'clock, we had an official weather service instrument station there. And we, you go out and check it every day at one, you write it down, mail the form in once a month to the weather bureau and they keep track. So sometimes locals will say, Hey Jim, how hot did it get today? And it was kind of a point of pride also. And, and one day it was up above 120 there. And Slade so got this bright idea. And, and she came into the range station and said, I need us if I can borrow a bucket and some water and some dishwashing soap and a clean rag. And I kind of thought to myself, okay, what's going on here? I was fishing for a few more details. And it, it turns out that uh, she had heard somewhere over the time that it's, it's hot enough, heard the expression, it's hot enough you could fry an egg on the sidewalk. And she thought, well, if that's true, I wonder if I could fry an egg on the hood of my dark green truck. It's a dark metal surface, probably kind of like a, a metal frying pan. So I wonder if that worked. And so she tried it. And the, the short answer to that question is, Yes, you really can fry an egg on the dark green metal hood of a truck when it's 120 degrees, measured in the shade, by the way. The flip side of that is that once you're finished and the egg's fried, it doesn't come off the hood very well. Uh, laughed later and said, maybe she's got to spray the non-stick cooking spray on the first. I don't know. But the, the outcome was it left a really ugly stain on the hood. And so she probably wish she hadn't tried that in retrospect, but it was an interesting experience for her. Just one of those things, I guess, that maybe that's what happened when you stand out in the sun. It's 120 degrees and your mind goes down a different path. I don't know. One of the things that have always struck me about this experiment, where you cook eggs on things in the sun as if they were frying pans, is that it's just as impressive if you are using an actual frying pan. It's more or less the same surface and it won't ruin your paint job. The marvel is... Not that any metal can cook, but that you can cook outdoors in the heat of the sun. So next time someone tries to make an omelet on the hood of your minivan, remind them to use a pan, or at least some tin foil. If you do this, you'll also be able to eat the egg when you're done and save all the cleanup. Food for thought. But when you're in a national park, coherent thought is sometimes the furthest thing from your mind, as every ranger knows. People sometimes find out I've written a couple of books about my experiences as a ranger, and they say, well, what are those about? And I say, well, the short answer is they're fun, family-friendly stories about what happens when Americans go on vacation and forget to pack their brains. I'll leave you with a few quick facts about Lake Mead. It was the first recreational area in America. At full capacity, it is the largest reservoir in America. The remains of a World War II B-29 bomber are available to scuba divers at the bottom of the lake. At the time of the crash, in 1948, it was being used for high-altitude atmospheric research. Even stranger, the entire town of St. Thomas, Nevada was submerged in 1938 
as Lake Mead stretched to realize its full capacity. Stranger than that, the remains of a thousand-year-old Native American metropolis are also buried in this area. Sadly, the town was discovered only shortly before the construction of the dam, in an area planned for flooding, so a full excavation was never possible. With the dam project already underway, archaeologists raced to uncover what they could, and some of these are preserved in the Lost City Museum of Archaeology in Overton, Nevada. And in one last, not-so-fun fact, as water levels in the reservoir have decreased, bodies have begun surfacing around the edges of the lake. At least some are believed to be the victims of mob violence, but the stories of most will likely never be known. The first of these bodies was found in a rusted-out barrel on the first day of my visit, though in a different area than I was staying. Here are your inevitable one-star reviews for this incredible park. Ashley B. says, Every time I come out here, water level gets lower and lower. Of course I know it's a man-made lake, but just looking at it is disheartening. Storm S. complained, We didn't go to Lake Mead, just drove by on our way to Vegas. First time I've been through since the dam bypass. So disappointing. Walls block all views from the skywalk. You could be anywhere. I used to love crossing the dam with the Art Deco statues. Even those are gone now. Storm is talking here about the Hoover Dam Bypass, but I'm not sure where she was expecting to find the statues. I love them too, and they're all still there at the side of the dam. This next one is fair. Like Jim said, you need to be more selective than Ricarda about when you go. Ricarda says, Spent one night on the campground in June 2014. Hottest night ever, ever, ever. At 3 a.m., still 40 degrees Celsius. Never again in summertime. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.